Hi there, this is episode 124, and today we're talking about educating infants and toddlers, and what does that even mean? You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi there, Danae here. It's episode 124, and today we're launching off a new series called Rethinking Education. Education is a field that is growing and changing, and it's important for us as parents to be aware of this. Raising children in this era of technology and innovation is going to require us to make some changes in the way that we're teaching our kids. Today, I'm interviewing Aubrey Hargis. Aubrey is an infant and toddler educator. Aubrey's going to share with us what exactly our role is in the first few years when it comes to education. Aubrey is the author of the brand new book, Baby's First Year Milestones, and I'll put the link to that in the show notes at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 124. Before we get into today's episode, here's a quick word from the sponsor. The sponsor for today's episode is PrepDish. Now, if you've listened to the podcast before, you might have heard me talk about PrepDish and my undying love for this company. This is something that has truly changed my kitchen and changed the way that I feed my family. PrepDish is a meal planning service. And now for some reason, I always held this belief in my mind that I would never find any use of a meal planning service, but I was so wrong. So the way that PrepDish works is it functions in three parts. So you first get a grocery list, then you get a prep day schedule and a dish day schedule. I like to order my groceries online. So I open my app, order my groceries. They're delivered to my house. So step one, you get the groceries. I order mine online. So I just open up my prep dish grocery list for the week and I order what I need. It arrives at my house in time to do what we call prep day. So prep day, my husband and I work together on either a Saturday or Sunday night to prepare the foods for the week. It usually takes about an hour and a half or two hours. And while this sounds like a long time, it's actually been really fun and a great bonding time for my husband and I. I definitely look forward to this time much more than I do Netflix. So after you do the prep day work, you come to dish day. And now dish day is each day that you're going to be serving a meal. You spend about, for me, it's usually 10 or 15 minutes just doing the final stage of the meal prep. And then the food's ready to serve. This means that I'm not spending 45 minutes or an hour every evening preparing dinner. I also feel like now that my husband can help me on the weekends because he's not usually home in time to help me during the week has really helped me to feel more supported and I feel like I'm not going it alone when it comes to feeding our family. But they also have a quicker prep day option for anyone that's interested in getting this done faster. PrepDish is giving the Simple Families audience two weeks free. So try it. Let me know how it goes. I want to know if you love it as much as I do. You can go to PrepDish.com forward slash families, and that's all lowercase. And there you can get your two weeks of free meal planning. Again, that's PrepDish.com forward slash families. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Aubrey. And if you have any questions or comments, please leave those for us in the show notes at SimpleFamilies.com forward slash episode 124. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Aubrey, I'm happy to have you talking with me about the topic this month, which is rethinking education. And I think that what better place to start than with infants and toddlers? Yes, this is one of my favorite topics. It's uh, something I have felt passionate about my whole life. Being in education and working in education uh, is pushing those boundaries uh, and and getting us all into a more progressive view um, of learning. Right, because I think a lot of parents, when we think about education, we think about 
education starts at kindergarten when we send them to school mm-hmm. or maybe to preschool. But what do you think? What do you think? When do you think education starts? Yeah, education starts so much earlier than that. It really starts right from birth, you know, or really pre-birth, right? It's our prepare, we're preparing for the birth. It starts right away. As soon as we know that a baby is going to enter the world, uh, we start making preparations for helping. Uh, you know, it, even in the womb, our little babies are listening to our voices and getting used and feeling sensations. Um, and so when we meet their eyes for the first time, I think a lot of parents have this overwhelming realization of, oh my goodness, like I'm in charge of this new life and bringing this this new baby into the world um, and that response, that sense of responsibility can feel overwhelming to a lot of parents. But, right. Yeah, and, and that feeling of, and I remember I felt it when I had my first at home with me, that feeling of, all right, well, what do I do now? Sort of they're laying on a blanket, staring up at a, at a mobile or a toy or something. And you just want to be doing all the right stuff. You don't want to mess it up. Right. Right. You feel exactly. like you've got, this chance, you know, and they do, they really do. I can say this as a mom of older children. I have an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old. They do grow up so fast. Everybody is right. You know, it feels trite when you're that new parent with a little baby and everyone who has older children is looking at you saying, oh, enjoy it now. Uh, But there's so much pressure. It's sometimes it's hard. It's hard to hold that space and, um, know that a lot about parenting and raising our children is about having patience to to get through these tough times, these worries and these pressures and these fears. If we can just slow things down, I think it all goes so much more smoothly. Yes, I agree. And I think there's something about the first year that the quiet moments, I mean, there's like, there's the crying and the difficult moments, but then the quiet moments can be a little bit boring after a while. You know, we're sitting and we're staring at our baby and we're thinking, am I supposed to be doing something? Am I supposed to be saying something? Sort of what comes next and sort of this feeling of, especially if you're a type A personality like me, where you feel like Mm -hmm. you're kind of always busy doing and going and that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on parents who experience that? And I hate to call it boredom because I mean, I don't mean Mm -hmm. to say we're bored with our babies, but this sort of idea that, like you said, well, explain to us what you mean by holding space for babies and for toddlers. Yeah, I think that what we, you know, they really do in this great time span, you know, when, when I just feel like I blinked and my children were once babies just yesterday and now they're so much more grown up. Uh, But when you're a brand new mom, time just seems to lengthen and extend, you know, because development is so slow for our babies from hour to hour. You know, they uh, look at them and we feel like they can't do a lot right away. Um, But in fact, inside their brains, there's so much that is growing. And I feel like if parents, you know, one of the the first things that a lot of new parents do is, is to go try and find out what it is that their babies are headed toward, you know, what kind of milestones are they headed toward? It gives parents something to be excited about. I know that when I had a little one, um, I didn't, you know, I, I knew about children because I was a teacher, but I didn't know what it was like to be a parent of a new baby and what new baby development was like. And I found that those, those periods where I myself was kind of, um, I know a lot of parents will stop work uh, and stay home for a little while to take care of a, a new little baby. Uh, and that can be a jarring transition for a lot of parents. And so 
when you are staying home and, and you have this little baby and you're feeling bored, I think it's important to know that is to start some kind of research <laughs> and, and to start learning about, you know, not just, you know, they'll be growing if they're just, if you're sitting next to your baby, they are going to be growing and learning and doing things, but it is enriching and empowering to become aware of their developmental stages and to know where they're headed and to have some ideas for some fun things that you can do to support that development along the way. Right. And I think so you just released a book called Baby's First Year Milestones. And Mm -hmm. the tagline is promoting and celebrating your baby's development with monthly games and activities. And I love it because it has really simple ideas of things that we can do month to month with our kids. And in the foreword of your book, there is a quick two page message from Dr. David Mm -hmm. Hill. And there was a line that I that really grabbed my attention here, and I'm going to read it. It says, Mm -hmm. an enormous and highly profitable industry has sprung up around infant development to browse a baby catalog, you'd think that unless you spend a small college fund on specially designed toys, both digital and analog, there's no point in even starting a college fund. Well, I'll be the first to agree that many of those toys are so adorable that I want to play with them myself. (laughs) Your baby doesn't need any of these things in order to develop. She only needs you. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was so, so telling because when we don't know what to do with a baby, I think a lot of us, we sort of revert to, well, maybe we need to buy something. Maybe we need a toy. Maybe they need variety. Maybe like there's so many, there's so much we can do and buy. And I think your book really does a good job of taking it back to the basics of what our kids really need at this age. Thank you. I feel like we get a lot of pressure from society to raise children right away who are smart and the best, right? We all want best for our children. Uh, And I was struck when I had a new little baby walking down the aisles at just how much stuff is marketed to parents who make babies smarter or (laughs) more advanced. And a lot of them are misleading for parents. You know, that a lot of these things that are marketed don't actually teach what they say they're going to teach to a baby, you know, where they'll, they'll throw in all these extra Oh, these extra noises and extra little bells and whistles that actually don't do a lot to promote development. And so what was really fun for me writing this book is taking a look at what developmental milestones babies are going through month to month, and then taking a look at some of the simple things that we can offer our babies, experiences and household objects, or maybe, you know, some very simple toys that we can provide to them. But babies really don't need a whole lot in terms of stuff. Right. And I think that a lot of the stuff that has been created for babies, a lot of the commercial products are not designed with the right goals in mind. And it's sort of, it's like this idea of like, why wouldn't you just start teaching your babies ABCs and one, two, threes? But I, I think of it as like, Let's say you have a fifth grader and you throw them into advanced calculus, right? (laughs) Like a fifth grader could sit through an advanced calculus class. They're not going to get anything out of it. They're going to get a lot more out of a regular fifth grade math class. So why Mm -hmm. would why would we ever put them into advanced calculus knowing that their brain is not ready for it, their mind and their nothing about them should be in that class? But I think we, right. do that, we do that with our babies. We put this, so these sort of materials in front of them thinking, oh, if we just, you know, if we just put it in front of them, they're just going to learn it and it's going to be valuable to them. But it, it's not, right? Because their brain isn't ready for it. Yeah, we have a concept in infant toddler education that people who study babies and toddlers 
encounter often, and that is that if a toy is, you know, if the toy does the work for the child, then it's probably not going to be a good toy (laughs) for the child to engage with, because children really do need to be engaging on their own terms with objects that are provided for them. Right. So that's the difference between like a little keyboard where you press one button and a whole song plays versus a little set of instruments where you create the tempo and the rhythm and you make a song yourself. It's there's Mm -hmm. there's a lot of work involved in play. And sometimes those two things sort of get grouped into one work and play in childhood, right? Yes, yes. And in fact, we don't tend to think of it, but babies are doing so much work (laughs) right from the moment that they're born. They are working towards some kind of milestone or another. And you might not know what it is. You can. And so in this book, you know, I talk about the different developmental milestones. And so you can kind of read ahead and it's fun to see what might be coming up. Of course, every baby is going to be on their own timeline. And so that's something that I think can be hard for parents to acknowledge, too, is that your baby might be a little bit of ahead in this area and a little bit behind in another. And it's still perfectly normal, you know, in, in the normal range. Right. And that phenomena happens throughout childhood. I mean, I think especially like into the toddler and preschool years, we see kids who their language development might be very advanced, but their emotional development is a little bit delayed. And it can be hard for us to see children through these individual capacities. It's hard to think like if a kid can carry on a full conversation with you, why are they still having tantrums? That can be frustrating Mm -hmm. to adults, right? Absolutely. (laughs) And if you think about our own, if you think about education, instead of just, you know, things that we're going to teach children that or that they need to know, if we think of it more of as a, a continuum, a continuum that starts at birth, uh, and ends at the end of life, you know, we have this very long path of learning that we are still in some stage of as adults. Uh, and you can think there's definitely things that I'm not as good at, and that I'm still learning to get better at in some areas that I'm quite accomplished at. And that's okay. That's going to be the same for our children. Right. So we don't expect them to be the best at everything all the time, right? Mm -hmm. It can be humbling as a parent, I think, to realize that some of the traits that you have as a parent, your child is also exhibiting. It can be difficult sometimes to understand that and and come to terms with it. Right. So as parents, do you feel like we should be sitting down and giving our kids lessons and teaching them directly? Or do you really prefer to see parents just teaching through the natural environment? Well, I think, you know, going back to your topic of rethinking education, I think we need to tackle the, you know, what is a lesson? What is a good lesson? We tend to think of teaching and lessons as being what we do with older children, sitting someone down, telling them something, and then having them understand um, or having them do something in particular that we know will lead to a very particular outcome. And it especially doesn't work like that with babies, toddlers, and preschoolers. For the first six years of life, especially, children are just learning through play. And so, yes, we give them lessons, but they're more like the the kind of natural lessons that occur in daily living, I think, are the best lessons. Wisdom that's imparted by the child experiencing something by playing and engaging with an object or just out and about in nature. Those are the best kind of lessons that are going to be for very young children. 
Right. And so a lot of parents, I think, get surprised when they see that their kids are learning incidentally through the environment. I remember hearing parents say when their kids knew their body parts, you know, if their if their son knew their arm and their leg and their stomach spontaneously, like, wow, I didn't teach them that. How did they learn that? This idea that we're not really sitting babies down and saying, all right, now it's time to learn your body parts. This is your head. Touch your head. This is your stomach. Touch your stomach. That they're actually learning just through talking about the body parts and through touching the body parts and through their natural environment. And I think that surprises a lot of us. You know, children will ask the kinds of questions that they need to learn about And sometimes it's a matter of waiting for them to ask that question, kind of exposing them to different experiences uh, and then waiting for those educational opportunities to arise. The children are naturally curious. I tell parents often that education is a journey that we take with our children and not something that we do to them. And so if we think of ourselves as parents, as learners, learning along with our children, I think it, it lends to much easier of a relationship to teaching and lesson giving. If we are out there exploring with our children, they're just naturally going to be watching us and, and they're going to be curious too about what we are learning. It will all kind of evolve more naturally that way. So do you think that over the years, since you've been in education, that you see parents becoming a little bit more stressed about their children's education in early childhood? Hmm. Well, I think that the internet is a double-edged sword. (laughs) There's a lot more information about development and about activities and about education that parents are certainly going and learning a whole lot more. There's a lot more access to information, which is great because we want parents to have lots of access to information about development that wasn't available before this was here. But also, there is a lot of pressure just by, I know a lot of parents talk about the pressures of Pinterest. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. I do. Yes. And as a blogger, I'm guilty of this too, you know, posting fun stuff online that I think might inspire people and some people are inspired by. And sometimes parents come across and if you're not in the right mindset, it can feel easy to compare yourself to others. And it can feel like you have even more pressure to perform and do more for your children. You look at someone else's journey. Instagram, too, is another source of, of internet envy for a lot of parents right now. And looking at someone else's perfect house isn't necessarily going to be helpful to us in, in evaluating our own lives and what's benefiting our own children. So I think it's hard for parents to keep that those two things in balance. Right. And I think about in the age of the internet, that early childhood education is a little bit different, because there are so many resources available. I think back went to when I was growing up, I mean, my mom didn't have Pinterest. So and she also didn't have the curriculum of a teacher because she wasn't a teacher. Therefore, she probably didn't feel the pressure of it. But now that I have all of these resources at my fingertips, it sort of makes me feel like, well, if I have it and it's right there, should I be doing it? Right. So I feel like that pressure is increased because the availability of all of these well-crafted activities and ideas are all over the internet of things that quote unquote will enrich childhood. And I don't do Pinterest activities with my kids. I've actually written articles about why I don't do Pinterest activities with my kids. <laughs> it's not my thing. And I also 
just prefer to let my kids play in an open-ended way. And Mm -hmm. I like to follow their lead rather than, you know, scoping out the best, most fun looking activity and putting all the effort into getting it all out and ready and buying all these missing pieces to make it come together and then have my kids sit down for like 30 seconds and then get tired of it because they weren't even interested in it anyways. (laughs) (laughs) You know, before, before the enticing nature of Pinterest, uh, we, we had craft books and I think that parents still like them because they focus you, you know, you can peruse through and see if anything inspires you, but it doesn't have that kind of, pressure attached to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, because it's an experience. Yeah, it's a different experience. And so a lot of parents do come to me and ask, what's like one tangible resource, you know, that I can look at that will help condense this information just down to what I need right now. (laughs) And so I was really excited um, as I was writing this baby's first milestones book, because it really forced me to look at child development month by month, and narrow down like what I felt like the essentials were for each stage. So to eliminate the decision fatigue of all of the activities and information out there. Exactly. Right. And I mean, it's I wouldn't say it's much of a spoiler alert. But most of the things (laughs) that you're talking about in this book are very simple, because our babies need simple activities. They do. And there are fun things that you can do. I, I feel like I feel like it's nice. Me personally, I like having a few high quality, nice wooden toys at my house, you know, and I I choose them carefully and they're beloved (laughs) kind of heirloom type of things. And I, I try to keep it very, very simple. And if there is something that parents feel is unaffordable, I feel like it's easy to make those kind of things yourself too. And so there's nothing wrong with getting crafty and having fun. You shouldn't feel pressured into either buying something that's super expensive, that's unaffordable to you, or having to go and make this elaborate effort to construct it yourself. There's a middle ground there to be found. Yes, I completely agree with that. So I was in one of my local mom's groups, I someone posted recently, and I thought this was a really interesting exchange that I was reading between a group of moms. I was just lurking kind of, I, I didn't express my opinion, um, but I want to hear your opinion <laughs> on this. So there was a mom that sure. asked, she has young children and she said, for all the experienced moms out there, all the moms of older kids, if you could give advice on getting your kids ready for college, what would that advice be? And I thought that the advice coming from the more experienced moms was interesting. And of course, there was a variety of advice, but there was one Mm. piece that stuck out to me. And there was one mom that said, whatever you do, don't take your foot off the gas pedal on your children's (laughs) education. Oh, wow. And I just, I thought I just was reflecting on that. And I'm like, what does that mean? Don't take your foot off the gas pedal of your children's education. Mm. What do you think about that? Wow, I think that's putting a lot of pressure on herself <laughs> right. to be in charge of her child's education. I personally think that children, my answer was going to be self-directed learning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because I feel like at a certain point, it's not my responsibility to be in charge of their learning. I feel, I guess I feel the opposite, you know. <laughs> right. I feel like my purpose is to get them to the stage where they are 100% in charge of their own education and their own interests and their own learning. And I feel like we can start in babyhood (laughs) by relaxing on that pressure, by allowing this natural development to unfold 
and by encouraging them to do the exploring themselves rather than seeing ourselves as the one in charge of the education who's going to structure things and make it all happen on an organized timeline. You know, I, I think that children naturally have this drive and curiosity and instinct to learn. And so I would say the number one thing for college readiness would be by the time my child gets to the age to decide whether to apply to college or not. And first of all, that's not my decision to make whether my children want to go to college. (laughs) And I enjoyed my college experience. And so that's also not easy for me to say that's their choice. But it needs to be if we want them to, to truly take charge of their own education. Right. And I completely agree with that. But I do think and sort of keeping with the topic for this month of rethink, rethinking education, I think it's so important that we rethink education. Because I think that there's a lot of traditionally minded folks out there who would view the comment that you just made, which was I really want to put the education in my children's hands as a little bit lazy. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to give you an example of this. So when my first when my son, my firstborn was 16 months old, we had done we did baby led weaning with him. And for anyone that's not familiar, that's where basically you're putting the food in front of the child and they're feeding themselves from the earliest of days. So starting at six months, they're feeding themselves, they're picking the food up and eating it. And I actually had a family member who called me lazy. Oh, my doing goodness. That. So and <laughs> But and I actually and I wasn't upset. I it, to me it was really and it really brought up some interesting thoughts of mm-hmm. that I really value this self-directed learning and letting kids be independent, letting them take the lead. But at the same time, there is a lot of traditional views out there that show that if the parents not stepping up and doing these things, you know, if the parents not putting the gas pedal on the education, are we being lazy? Yeah, it's a very powerful word. <laughs> I think that a good word to keep in mind to counter that is the idea of responsibility. Whose responsibility is it to learn how to eat and to do the eating? Whose responsibility is it to go to sleep? Whose responsibility is it to learn how to use the toilet? (laughs) And is it our job as the parents to force these things to happen? Are we doing the learning? And so I think that if we can flip that point of view And think about this word responsibility for the learning to happen to be on the part of the child. We can then think about, okay, well, if it's my child's responsibility to learn how to do the eating, what can I do to support this process? And we can see ourselves more as a guide to education. And, you know, I I have this debate a lot in the homeschooling community with the unschooling community, you know, and and unschoolers, for those of your readers or listeners who might not know, uh, is a progressive form of education where there's a lack of curriculum in the homeschooling. And so this can be seen on a, like on a, a range, you know, of being more constricting and being less constricting. And I think everybody will have their own point of view of, of what responsibility a child should take for each part of their learning process of growing up and what support means to them. Now, and for me, support means I can't make my child go to sleep, but I can create flexible, you know, consistent bedtime routines that can help foster that kind of nurture it into happening more regularly. But ultimately, it's my child's responsibility to follow through with the end result. And so I I see the same in education. Is it my responsibility to make sure that my child is good at math 
Or is it my child's responsibility to learn math? And if so, then what can I do to help that and guide it? And and a lot of it will be about helping your child see education with a very positive view. Right. And partnering, you know, as you said, Mm -hmm. serving more of as a guide rather than a teacher or a dictator and sort of running how their lives are going to, how things are going to go for them. Right. So I've really been thinking about this pedal pushing lady. And I think about and I know she's not alone. Like I know that there's this feeling that and it's I think that that idea is it's you have the best of intentions, right? It's these really amazing, wonderful parents who just want to do everything and be everything and provide every opportunity that they can for their children to get them ahead. And I think that the vast, vast majority of the time, these parents are their heart is in the right place. And I think that these are the parents that are easily preyed upon by like that quote I was reading about, you know, there's all these products in society that we can feel like we need to buy and things that we feel like we need to do in order to get our kids ahead. And the reality is that we don't actually need all those things. Right. Children don't need all those things. We might feel like we might be made to feel like we need them. But children really need very, very little in order to grow and develop and learn. Yes. And I, interesting lately, I've been seeing a lot of daycare centers rebranding themselves. And these are centers that take care of kids, you know, from seven o'clock in the morning till six o'clock at night. And mm-hmm. a generation ago, these were called like, ch- they were called child care centers or, you know, kitty center or like we love children or just had they had different names that elicited childcare. But now what I'm seeing is a lot of these childcare centers are calling themselves schools. There's actually a local one that used to be called the Children's Center and now it's called the Children's Academy. They've Mm -hmm. rebranded themselves as an academy. And to me, that's interesting. It makes me feel like it shows that parents are looking to send their kids to school as early as possible, which could be, in many cases, six weeks of age when enrollment begins. Right. You know, it's it's difficult. I remember when I had a toddler, I was actually hired back at my school. I had taught there in the elementary classroom, and then I was hired back with my young toddler to teach in the, the toddler classroom. And so I pursued a certification in infant toddler um, Montessori, and I started teaching in that school. And one time I brought my child to our pediatrician for just a well checkup. And she was questioning me about like what our days were like and what we were doing, just making conversation. And I mentioned that he came with me to my school and into my classroom and was with me during the day. And we went to school together every day. And she looked at me and she frowned, (laughs) kind of confused. And she said, you mean you teach daycare? (laughs) And and I said, no, I mean, I'm a teacher. (laughs) And I teach two-year-old. And I, I could see that conflict in her too, you know? I could see that she was trying to tell him, you know, was I that kind of parent who was gonna, you know, push these two-year-olds into learning things more academic in a way that was inappropriate for two-year-olds? And as a, a teacher, I do feel like we tend in our society to look down on daycare workers. And we tend to see them as just mm, people who are babysitting or taking care of of children in a non-educational environment. 
And I feel like this is not necessarily a good thing. I think that there's great value. You can have your career and you can study child development and become very good at it. And you can learn a lot about how children learn, even very, very young children, babies and toddlers. And so I'm not necessarily opposed to these daycares rebranding themselves as schools and the daycare workers or child caregivers as teachers, as long as the educational focus is developmentally appropriate. And I think that's what you're saying is that often it's not. <laughs> well, and I'm wondering, and I don't know because I haven't been in them, but I, I feel mm-hmm. like it's, it feels to me outwardly a little bit of like a sales pitch. It's like, you know, right. send your kids here and they're going to go to Harvard. Like, it's just right. like this like idea that start them young, get the foot on the gas pedal. And mm-hmm. I guess, and maybe that's me jumping to conclusions. But when I see mm. that branding happening, it makes me wonder who they're trying to appeal to and what what sort of appeal they're trying to make. I feel really conflicted about it because I do remember during that same time that I went back to work and started teaching toddlers just before then, when my first was about 14 months old, I started getting quizzed by other moms. Are you applying to a toddler program? And I, my answer was no, you know, but and at that point, I didn't quite know that I was going to be teaching one. I hadn't made the decision yet. Totally. But I do remember thinking this seems very strange that everyone is asking about toddler school and about preschool already, because really, I feel like uh, I felt like for me, there is no better place for my child to be than with me at that age. So what do you think about for parents who are going back to work and who work full time of the different options for childcare arrangements? Do you feel like there are any better options than others as far as, you know, an in-home daycare or a daycare center or a nanny? Or what are your thoughts about all the choices? Yeah, I have really strong feelings about this. When I was about 17 years old, I had graduated from high school and I was all set to go to college and I was going to pursue my degree in education and did (laughs) and eventually got my degree in education. But at the time I had summers off from college and I would go back home every year that I was in college and I would work at daycares, like local daycares that were in my hometown. And some of them were really awful places to me. (laughs) And this really strongly impacted my decision to want to stay home with my children. There are some really inappropriate places out there calling themselves childcare centers that are not good for children with people who don't don't want to be there and uh, directors who don't care about child development. They are out there. And so I feel like it's very, very important that parents go and tour the place that they are considering and really take in who is working there and why they're working there and what their qualifications are. I really feel like you want somebody who is educated in child development, who has studied the age group of the child that your child of your child's age. And you also want to know what their point of view is on discipline. And I feel like that is super, super important that you and the childcare teachers or, or workers in that environment are on the same page. And so I really encourage parents to do their research. Absolutely. And another thing to consider in the early years, especially in the first and second year of life is the turnover rate. And how many adults is your children coming in contact with? But And I think that we can underestimate the importance of it, but kids need to see the same faces often 
every day if possible. Mm -hmm. Yes. In some daycares, you'll also have really high student teacher ratios. And I think that parents should look and make sure that they are with somebody who is very consistent. I always tell people that nurturing, you know, people ask me a lot, you know, what kind of philosophy should the school be? Is one better than another? And I always say that it's really more about your relationship with your child's teacher or caregiver and making sure that that caregiver is someone who is warm and nurturing and loving. And that is super, super important at a very young age that your child feel like that person can be trusted, especially because when they're away from you for so long, they need someone that they can depend on. And and you need to feel secure and that you, when you hand your child over to that person, they are going to be cared for and you're going to be contacted if anything does come up. Absolutely. Do you have any other thoughts on any other types of childcare arrangements for young children? Yeah, I think that nannies can be a really good option. I think that a lot of people will go with a nanny to hire somebody to come and work with them in their own home. And that way the child can keep their consistent. The environment is more consistent. The routines can stay fairly consistent. I think that that could be a good option. I think that, yeah, I do. And in-home child care? Yeah, and in-home child care, I think that you need to, again, check your child-teacher ratio with those and uh, make sure that they are following the legal requirements in your area. And I also think that in-home child care can be really, really great. I think that it could be like a home away from home. Uh, my husband was cared for by some people who lived near him when he was very, very little, and he loved them so much and has all kinds of good memories of it. And his parents went back to work when he was very, very little. And so I think that children can develop a warm and and loving relationship with people who are not their immediate family members. And to them, they kind of become like immediate family members. Right. And I think in-home child care is unique in the arrangement that as it compares to a regular daycare center and that the children are going to be seeing the same faces over and over that those caregivers are going to be there present every day. And it is a home environment, which I think Mm -hmm. is also extra comfortable for young children. And I think a lot of people have reservations about home daycare. So that's just sort of my two senses. I think that if you find the right arrangement, it can be really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly really good people who are out there. All right. Well, this has been really helpful, Aubrey. Thank you so much. So are there any resources that you have that you feel like would be helpful to parents in addition to your book, which I'm going to put the link to that in the show notes? Thank you. Yeah, I also teach parenting courses online. Uh, A lot of people will join me. I do a lot of live lectures. And it's always a really fun way to get to know other parents who are kind of on the same page learning about their child's development. Um, I offer courses for, I guess, ages all the way from zero to age six right now. Great. And I will put the links to those in the show notes. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Aubrey. Thank you very much. This is really fun. (laughs) I love the topic. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to learn more about Aubrey, you can go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 124. And I'll leave the links in the show notes. If you want to stay in touch with Simple Families, the best way is to go to simplefamilies.com and leave your email address. The email updates will keep you in touch with what's going on on the blog, the podcast, and in the community. 
And when you have a minute, please leave a rating or review for this show. Your support is greatly appreciated.